sermon or possibly exhaust even in a series, a whole series of sermons. Years ago, I read that a, that a good preacher uh, should exhaust his text. That is to say, he should touch on everything that is in that text or else leave his congregation frustrated that he left parts of it unaddressed. Well, if that's the case, then prepare yourselves for frustration. Uh, In these few verses, we'll come to the darkness that fell over the whole land for three hours during Jesus' death, but I'll not be saying anything about that. There's Jesus' famous words from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, but we'll not consider that this morning. There's Jesus' last breath. The centurion's praise to God and his statement, certainly this man was innocent, an eloquent witness joined to those of Pilate and Herod, and even the uh, other thief on, or the thief on the cross next to Jesus, uh, but we'll not get to that, nor will we consider the crowds returning home beating their breasts, nor the women, nor his acquaintances who stood at a distance to watch. So what's left? Well... Let's see after first we pray. Father in heaven, we pray for the grace to enter into this history, to receive it. We pray that you would, using our sanctified imaginations, our hearts transport us back to these events and to this day, and particularly to their meaning and uh, what they mean and continue to mean for us even this day. Highly privileged As we are, Father, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I grew up in the church. We went every Sunday morning and evening. In those years, I never remember hearing the name of Jesus mentioned except in cursing. This is the testimony of Richard Wagner, formerly a missionary of ours, of this congregation to Colombia and then to um, Mexico and then Peru. Rich continues, I remember hearing about how Christians were supposed to have peace and joy and love in their lives. I didn't know what it meant to be a Christian and I certainly didn't have peace, joy or love in my life. What I had was guilt, grief, hurt, and horrible nightmares. The nightmares seemed to get worse and worse almost every night. 
I knew the root of my problems. When I was very young, there was an accident in our home, and I killed my younger brother. This was the root of my problems, and God couldn't help. I believed I'd done something even God couldn't forgive. In an effort to relieve the guilt, grief, and hurt, I played judo and football in high school, thinking these macho activities would somehow cleanse me of my sin. Upon graduation, still uh, lacking the cleansing I sorely needed, I joined the Marine Corps. The Marines, being the strongest, toughest of the armed forces, surely would give me the help I needed. I was first a recon Marine, the toughest of the tough, but the hurt still continued. Then I was sent to Memphis, Tennessee to attend the electronics technician school to prepare me to work on a computer system in a spy plane, an EA-6A intruder jet. While attending this school, I heard about the place, about a place in downtown Memphis where they had free food and pretty girls to entertain the servicemen. Sounded like a good deal for a 17-year-old Marine far from home, so a group of us Marines decided to go to this place, fully intending to kick out any sailors who may have been there. We were, after all, Marines. We found the place, the Memphis Servicemen Center, and there they did have free food and pretty girls. Ramona was one of them. But all they wanted to do was talk about the Bible. Nothing else. I didn't want to hear anything about salvation, but I kept going back to see this one redhead, Ramona. Besides what I had done, even God couldn't forgive. I kept going back over and over to see Ramona. Finally, I was in a church service with Ramona, the only date she would allow When God broke through all my barriers and spoke to my spirit, he said, I can forgive even that. That was November 10, 1968. I asked Christ to come into my life and forgive me for all my sins, including that of killing my brother, and he did. He came and washed away all of my guilt, grief, hurt, and nightmares. It felt like a fire hose flushing out my spirit, and my life was changed for all eternity. Dear flock, when Jesus died on the cross, a very remarkable thing happened. I don't mean the darkness, though that was, of course, quite remarkable indeed. It was not a season in which a solar eclipse was possible. The Feast of the Passover was celebrated, celebrated during full moon. And what is more, an eclipse would not have lasted for three hours, but none of that is any problem at all for the one who said, let there be light. What I'm referring to is something that was not witnessed by those gathered at Golgotha, at Calvary, just outside the city where Jesus was crucified. This happened inside Jerusalem, inside The temple. At the moment that Jesus breathed his last, the huge and very thick curtain in the temple was torn in two, we understand from a couple of the other Gospels, 
torn from top to bottom. Those of you who know your Old Testament history will immediately recognize what he's referring to here. The most holy place, or for those of us who cut our teeth on the King James Version, the Holy of Holies, refers to an interior room deepest inside the tabernacle and later inside the temple, separated at its entrance from the rest of the temple by this huge and thick curtain. There behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant with the golden cherubim on each side of the lid with their wings stretched out toward one another and over the mercy seat. We remember how people became sick and even died from mishandling the Ark of the Covenant that now was stationed in the inner sanctum of the temple. Only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies or most holy place and that but once a year. It was an elaborate ceremony. You can read about it this afternoon and in Leviticus 16, if you like. And those of you who know your Old Testament theology as well, and know as its history, know that the ceremony functioned in the lives and consciences of the people who witnessed it, uh, but always and only from a distance. Those who watched and were part of the ceremony up to the curtain through which only the high priest could go, were profoundly reminded of two fundamental truths of the Christian faith. First, the absolute holiness of God. And second, in light of that pure holiness, our devastating guilt, our sinfulness and its consequences. The most holy place, that part of the temple closed off by that great curtain, was the premier symbol in the Old Testament of the holiness of God. And it was that holiness, God's glorious purity, that made it utterly and everlastingly impossible that sinful men and women could make themselves right with God, or receive his favor, or enjoy fellowship with him. And that's why they could never get into the most holy place. The elaborate ritual of the temple worship is the demonstration to our consciences of this fact that sinners could never be right with God apart from the satisfaction of God's holiness, which, of course, we are incapable to do. That's what Rich Wagner knew by experience and the testimony he gives, what he knew even if he did not fully understand it or put it into words before his conversion, what he was experiencing, his sin so great, greater than anything for which he could possibly make atonement, had to be dealt with somehow. Because God is holy. He is impeccably holy. He is, as the angels cry out in his presence, holy, holy, holy. The curtain itself, which separated Israel from God's holiness, 
was a powerful and clear sign of this central fact of human existence, that God is holy and we are unholy. And as a result, there is an impenetrable wall between us and God that can never be broken down by a man and must remain closed unless and until God's holiness is satisfied. That's where the priest came in, ceremonially ceremonially speaking. And what the priest brought into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Blood. God's holiness, his just holiness, requires a just punishment for sin. Death. We have sinned, all of us, all we have sinned and gone astray. And now, someone's got to die. If the ritual of the temple, not just yearly as in this case, but daily outside of the Holy of Holies in the courtyard, the slaying of bull after bull after bull and And goat after goat, day after day after bloody day, conveyed anything at all. It was that the wages of sin is death. But it also taught something else. It taught that my sin can be transferred from me to someone else. Do you remember before they, they would slay those bulls and those goats and those animals, what the worshipers did right before the blood was poured out from the animal? The worshipers laid their hands on the heads of those animals. Why? It was as an act of transferring their sins to that animal. It was a sacramental action, to be sure. No amount of bulls or goats could actually carry away their sins, but it was a powerful sacrament, just as baptism and the Lord's Supper are powerful sacraments today. In some, the point was, somebody's got to die for sin and for sins. That either we or a substitute for us in our place has to die if we're to have any hope at all of being made right with God, whose eyes are so pure they cannot even look on sin. That's exactly what happened on the cross, and that's why this impenetrable curtain in the temple was torn in two the moment that Jesus breathed his last, when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. A way has been made, has been opened for us, for you and for me to come to God, to enjoy fellowship with him through that curtain. Someone has gone 
before us. And that someone, praise God, has taken us by the hand and led us through that curtain with him. That remarkable fact is celebrated in the letter to the Hebrews where we read that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now here's our problem today. That curtain has disappeared from the consciousness of the Christian church. And from your consciousness and from mine too. Christians today far too often and far too much think and feel about God and about the gospel as if there never had been such a curtain. As if God's terrible and infinite holiness had never made our salvation Utterly impossible. We think and speak far too often as if it were commonplace that the holy God should forgive the sins of sinners as inveterate as we are, as if that's just his job. We do not think and feel about Almighty God as we've been taught in his word to think and to feel about him. It's too often just words for us. When we read that Moses had to take off his shoes because the place, the ground, was made holy by God's presence there. Or that having come from speaking with God, Moses' face glowed with with, uh, glory from having been with God in his presence. Or that the Cherubim and the seraphim in heaven, glorious creatures that they themselves are, nonetheless use two wings to cover their faces and two to cover their feet when in the presence of God. We've forgotten the utter and total incompatibility between God's holiness and our sin. John The late John Stott, that titan of modern evangelical Christianity, makes the point in his study of five metaphors in Scripture for God's relationship to human sin and to human sinners. He lists them. Height, distance, light, fire, and vomiting. All ways of saying that God cannot be in the presence of sin and that if it approaches him too closely, it is repudiated or it is consumed. Stott goes on to observe that these notions are foreign to modern man. The kind of God who appeals to most people today would be easygoing in his tolerance of our offenses. He He'd be gentle and kind and accommodating and would have no violent reactions. Unhappily, even in the church, he goes on, we seem to have lost the vision of the majesty of God. There is much shallowness and levity among us. 
prophets and psalmists would probably say of us that there is no fear of God before their eyes. In public worship, our habit is to slouch or squat. We do not kneel nowadays. It is more characteristic of us to clap our hands with joy than to blush with shame or tears. We saunter up to God to claim his patronage and friendship. It does not occur to us that he might send us away. How might we have entered the sanctuary this morning? If we, coming through those doors, could see what Isaiah saw in the sanctuary, the holiness of God, even just the hem of his robe filling the place. What of our sin and of our tolerance for sin, for our own sin? The tolerance of sin is on the rise in the church, and what was once considered grievous, a great offense against God, is now overlooked and brushed under the rug. We wonder over the fact that for one sin, our father and mother Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, and the entire human race cast with them under the curse and judgment of God. For one sin, the posterity of Canaan, the son of Noah, Ham, fell under a curse that remains to this day. For one sin, even a man as great in holiness and faith and love as Moses was kept from fulfilling the great dream and longing of his life to enter the promised land for one sin. We have psychologized and theorized and victimized our sin out of the realm of the human conscience. And sad to say, as a result, we have only the faintest understanding of what so many people have gone through. And by the Spirit of God, through the ages, they have come under the conviction of their own sinfulness before the infinitely holy God. And how nearly crushed they were by the weight of that conviction. Terrified by it they were, like Peter's congregation, remember, on the day of Pentecost. Sadder still, we have only the vaguest sense of the feeling that, of that, that indescribable euphoria, the excitement, the the thrill that has overtaken the saints when first they realize that a God so high in majesty and so terrible in his holiness nevertheless could love, could love such wretches as we are, as they had come to understand themselves to be. Monday night, 23rd November, 1654, from half past 10 to half 
past midnight and forever after, Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and man of letters, a philosopher, wore sewn into his clothing a piece of parchment upon which he had soon thereafter written the fragmentary speech by which he'd sought to remember uh, what had taken place during those two hours. These few words he wrote, certainty, peace, joy. I forget the world and everything but God. Righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus, Jesus. I separated myself from him, renounced and crucified him. I separated myself from him eternally. I submit myself Absolutely to Jesus Christ, my Redeemer. All of that because Pascal had known the crushing weight of his own sin, of a conscience laden with guilt, the sin that separated him infinitely from God. And then he had seen that that curtain that separated him from God, seeing that curtain torn from top to bottom, opening for him too to come to God. But he could not take it all in for the wonderment of it all. Rich Wagner described it like a fire hose washing away all sin. Dear friends, If you have come to a sense, any sense at all, of the holiness of God and of the vileness of your own sin and your guilt before him, and therefore the infinite separation between you and him because of your sin, then and only then are you ready for the great message of the torn curtain. We learn to appreciate the access of God, which Christ has won for us, only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. We can cry hallelujah with authenticity only after we first cried, Woe is me, for I am lost. There is a sacrifice. There is a sacrifice which can bring you right into the heart of the Holy of Holies, through the curtain, into fellowship with God, happy relationship with the Holy, Holy, Holy God. It's not a goat. It's not a bull. As a matter of fact, it is a lamb. It's the lamb. The lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The one who has gone through that curtain before you to open that way to you. It's what he has done, not what you have done. On the cross, 
Our great high priest, not with blood in hand, but bleeding from his hands and feet. Not only passed through the curtain, but tore that curtain in a way that no one ever possibly could but he, from top to bottom. Nothing less than that was necessary for you and for me to come to God, to draw near to him with sincere hearts and in full assurance of faith. How Christians hold on to that hope, cling to that hope, the hope that you profess, hold to it unswervingly. For he who promised is faithful. I gave you about the first page of Rich Wagner's testimony. The rest of it reads like an action-adventure of the Indiana Jones type, but in the context of Christian missions with bold prayer and bold service. Exciting, the story is, peppered with poisonous snakes in the jungle and emergency airlifts and broken ribs and severed fingers. A crocodile once tried to eat Rich whole. Murder threats and near kidnappings, overnight exiles under the cover of darkness, huge and noble sacrifices for the kingdom of God, and through it all, literally hundreds of lives, one to the Lord. And the adventure continues, and it will continue, into the holiest of holy places, into the very presence of God himself. Why? Because by the grace of God, a 17-year-old Marine who found himself face to face with that impenetrable curtain between himself and God had that curtain torn for him too. No more separated from God, he found grace, or rather we should maybe say grace found him. And he followed Jesus by faith from the cross through the curtain, to God. Please, God, that the same may be said of you. Amen.